Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Dana Balut. And I'm Hibba Fisher. And this is El Empire. It went viral. It was everywhere. It's very, very foreign to Arab culture to talk about personal things publicly. Twelve years before that, I was under the bombs of Beirut. I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is El Empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Can you just introduce yourself for us? Sure. I'm going to start by pronouncing my name the way that I pronounce it, which isn't Mona. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Mona, <laughs> which we can get into if it's of any interest to you. <laughs> This is Mona Shalabi. Mona is a British-Iraqi data journalist and currently the data editor-at-large at The Guardian. Previously, Mona had a column with The New York Magazine. Personally, my favorite thing about Mona is her Instagram account. It's where a lot of her work is highlighted. I love how she publishes these really wonderful infographics and she'll take this super complicated information and then represent it in something that's beautiful and also easy to understand these illustrations that then you're like oh that's what that trend is she's so great if you don't follow her already do that now she co-created a video series called the vagina dispatches that was nominated for an emmy award and has worked with the likes of netflix the bbc national geographic channel 4 and vice so mona and i called each other i live in la she lives in new york And as a disclaimer, this episode will acknowledge the existence of male and female genitalia and the existence of sex. All right, let's get started. My name's Mona Chalabi and I'm a data journalist. Okay, so just random questions. What food could you eat every single day and never get bored? Tabbouleh. No way. I love tabbouleh. I could live on nothing but tabbouleh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Um, Where were you born and uh, where did you grow up? I was born in London and that's where I grew up uh, most of my life, yeah. Let's start with um, where are your parents from? Uh, My parents are Iraqi. Okay. And and they moved to London when? So they actually met in London. They both moved separately before they knew each other. Um, And... I think that my mum moved when she was like 26 and my dad maybe moved in his early 30s. Since your parents are Iraqi, what was your relationship to Iraq like growing up? Did you have any relationship to the country? I feel like I didn't really know that I was Iraqi for a long time, which I know will kind of horrify my mother. Uh, And I think she'll probably feel like she went wrong somehow. Um, But yeah, I didn't really know that we were Iraqi. I think my parents um, 
placed a real emphasis on assimilation. And I also think that Iraq was a place that they never really imagined being able to ever go back to. They didn't renew their Iraqi passports, um, you know. So it's not that they didn't feel Iraqi. If anything, I'm so shocked, like, you know, that transition that everyone has from getting to know their parents as purely mum and dad to getting to know them as people in their own right. It's been really surprising to me as an adult to realise how big Iraq is as a part of who they are. But that wasn't, it didn't feel like that was communicated to us growing up. It's weird. Did you guys ever speak Arabic at home? Not really, no. And there's a reason for that. So my dad was a paediatrician in quite a deprived part of London. And so many of the kids that he saw were doing really badly in school. And the thinking at the time was that um, growing up with a second language at home will be detrimental to you in school. And I mean, it's still been it's still the case that kids who grow up speaking two languages end up speaking a little bit later on in life. But that was always attributed to some kind of severe developmental delay and he didn't want that for us. So we went to Arabic school when I was like a little bit older But that was just so bizarre because Monday to Friday we would go to a Christian school. Yeah. And then on Saturday we would be learning Arabic but through the Quran and wearing like hijabs. So we'd just like show up at Arabic school and quickly put on our hijabs. So I didn't really understand. Yeah. How would your parents describe you? Mm, difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I was always quite focused. So I would always like work hard in school, but was also really disobedient, which was a weird mix. And it was strange because my sister was in some ways the mirror image of me where she would show up and she was so polite and so sweet to teachers and would never do a single piece of work. <laughs> Whereas I was rude, but would always like do the work. So I, I wonder if this was a part of like my dad's training as a paediatrician or if it was the fact that he grew up with strict parents. I don't know. But we had no rules growing up. We, we like, there were no rules. So when I went to school, I didn't understand. I just, I didn't understand any of it. What do you, what do you mean by no rules? All the things that I, that I hear friends talking about or that I, that I discovered f from friends about the, the limitations that their parents placed or not even limitations but the the way that they were raised was very foreign to me so for example right a normal rule that I see a lot of parents doing with their kids even friends of mine now who have kids is saying like you can't have too many sweets or chocolate we had a cupboard at home and you could eat as many sweets and chocolate as you wanted until you felt physically sick <laughs> I think the belief was just like you guys will figure it out and I remember when um Again, I feel like my mum will be kind of horrified at me telling some of these stories. But anyway, I remember when it was time for like the class, the school photo. So every single year, a photographer would come to the school and take a picture of you and you and your sibling, if you had a sibling. And I remember the headmistress would bring in a brush just for us. We were like the only kids that looked so feral that she needed to bring in a hairbrush. And it's because like, I didn't want my hair to be brushed. So my mum was like, well, well, whatever, you know, I won't brush your hair then. That's amazing. I mean, it, 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 it's so interesting to me because that's quite opposite than the, the, the common kind of um, upbringing, especially amongst Arab parents. Yeah. No, like I remember, I remember calling up my best friends and being like, Cassie, I went and got a tub of paint and painted um, my mum's room And I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if she's going to like it. And Cassie was just like, 
oh my God, you're going to be in such bad trouble. Because she was assuming that my mum would react the same way that her parents would. So she came over and we tried to like clear it up. And her room was completely wrecked, like completely destroyed. And when my mum walked in, she was just like, oh no. <laughs> but there was, ne- it was, there was never a question of like, you know, yeah, being, I don't know, being disciplined for that. At the same time, there were definitely expectations that were that were never really said, but were were kind of clear. So I remember my sister saying to my mum, I really, really love art. And my mum was like, you know, it's really artistic, plastic surgery. <laughs> so I think they always wanted us to go into medicine and to, yeah, to... to so they were Arab in that respect, you know, like going to law or medicine and anything else is dangerous and precarious and not sensible. What was your relationship like with your sister? Growing up, uh, we fought a lot. And I would say that we were trying to figure things out separately in our own ways. And now as adults, we're very close. Yeah. And we've started to talk about our childhood in a way that I think is healthy and that we never really did when we were younger. I feel like I share a lot publicly. I talk a lot about my personal life in ways that make my family very uncomfortable. It's very, very foreign to Arab culture to talk about personal things publicly. I think part of Western culture is to be like, you do you, you do whatever makes you feel good. And I think I've done that up to a point. But there's, there also comes a point when I actually just want to respect my family's wishes. And I know that to Westerners listening, it might sound like I'm... I don't know, like passive or weak for doing that, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. I think it causes it causes my family members harm, like real pain when, when I talk publicly about things they don't want me to. And when you talk about when you talk about things that you talk about publicly, do you mean like your personal life or your dating life or maybe like your like illustrations maybe that are a bit more racy than they would want? Is that what you mean? I I think more about my personal life. So I made a four-part video series called Vagina Dispatches. I mean, I talked about having an orgasm in that, which I guess lays to rest (laughs) any notions that I'm still a virgin. (laughs) I made it very clear that I have been sexually active. And yeah, I think that was really upsetting. And our only solace is the hope that... um, Maybe family members haven't heard it. That's just like the hope. Yeah. My mum's definitely heard it. Was there a conversation about it? Yeah. She was just like, I wish you hadn't. But she's also like, she also knows I'm incredibly stubborn. And um, all she said was, I wish you hadn't. And it made her sad. Were you always kind of on the more artistic side growing up? Like, what were you interested in as a kid? I think I was just interested in success I know it sounds so weird but even just as a kid I was like so focused on just trying to do the thing that would mean that I could um, be independent be financially independent um, and be able to take care of myself because I just felt like life was quite scary and you never knew what was going to happen and I just wanted to be able to do that so I was just always so ambitious where do you think you got that ambition from? I think from my mum. My mum's just like a powerhouse, yeah. Like she, um, I think she won't mind me saying this. Uh, she was taken out of school um, by her dad, partly because he said that she was taking it too seriously. 
Um, and so she was out of school for many years. I want to say something like she was taken out of school when she was six or seven and then went back to school when she was maybe 12 or 13 and caught up in all of, of all of those years. She just caught up immediately and was just very, very focused on studying medicine, which is something that no one in her family had ever done. And it was all about her gaining her independence and her freedom. Um, and she did it. And I just find she was just so, she's just so incredible. Tell me, um, where did you go to school and, and what you studied? And So I went to Edinburgh. I started off studying politics, philosophy and economics and something that I don't talk about very publicly because mm, I still feel kind of weird about it is the fact that I dropped out. So I studied there for two years, was absolutely miserable, like just so deeply, deeply unhappy. And then I um, applied to do a year abroad in France and I really enjoyed being in France. And so what I did was I dropped out of my degree program and applied for a master's and kind of handed over all of my certificates to the French secretariat, knowing that they might not necessarily understand exactly what they said. And so I somehow got into this master's program without an undergraduate degree. So I have a master's, but no bachelor's. A quick break from our story today to tell you about another Kerning Cultures Network production, our inaugural show, which is also called Kerning Cultures. In it, we tell stories from the Middle East and its diaspora, like the story about one man's mission to revive specialty coffee in Yemen amidst the current war, or this story about the surprising connection between Lebanon the country and a string of small towns in the U.S. with the same name. I went to South Dakota, Lebanon, South Dakota, and went to the Long Grand Saloon. I sat in and I was talking to her and she said, what were you from? And I said, from Lebanon. And as I said Lebanon, her eyes just lit up. This is where the story gets interesting. They're the kind of stories that will transport you into other worlds, across the Middle East and the spaces in between. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. That's Kerning Cultures, Kerning with a K. Now let's get back to our story today. When we left off, Mona was telling us about how, by a fluke in the French system, she managed to get a master's degree without a bachelor's degree. What happened after that? I know you did like a, a quick stint in, in Jordan as well. Yeah, I, I studied in Jordan, uh, I think it was my first summer while I was at the University of Edinburgh, because I felt really, I felt really, I wanted to learn Arabic. I wanted to learn Arabic because I thought it'd be great for my career, because I wanted to be able to communicate with family members in a different way. I'd, I'd all of a sudden realised as an adult that I only had access to a certain part of my mum and that constantly speaking in her second language changed things. And I think it was because, for the, so growing up, we had no Arabs around us, which I think is a big part of my weird Arab identity, that the only Arabs that I knew were my parents and my sister. And so when my mum's brother moved to the UK from Iraq, all of a sudden seeing her speaking in Arabic, I just saw this completely other side to her. And I guess I wanted to access it. So yeah, I decided to go and learn Arabic. Arabic is hard. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard language. And I also felt really frustrated. I was like, no matter how good I get at Arabic, when I speak Arabic, it will always be like, mm, that's like that's a bit unimpressive. You don't speak it perfectly. If I invested this same time and energy into learning Mandarin, people would be like, whoa, you speak Mandarin. That is so incredible. 
Uh, and I think I'm a I, I, I seek out praise. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I went into journalism. I think a lot of people that work in journalism are a little bit narcissistic. Um, and so it felt really frustrating to me that no one really cared that I was learning Arabic because it was always just about catching up with what I should have known. I should have always been able to have spoken Arabic fluently. And all of my efforts were just invisible somehow because of the colour of my skin. When you watched your mom kind of flourish in her native tongue... Um, what was that like? How was she different in, in English than she was in Arabic? So the, the most interesting thing was going to Iraq with her. So it was the first time that she'd been since she left. She hadn't been in maybe 36, 37 years. And when she left Iraq, she was a young woman. And when I watched her go back and I watched her speaking to her brothers, me and my sister were just like, oh my God, she was acting like a young girl. And she was so playful and she was like teasing people and she had this lightness to her that it makes me sad. That's not that's not the woman that I that I knew because her life has been so difficult. Um, and I think a big part of her life in the English speaking world was difficult, that she was always so, so serious. Yeah, she never joked around. Yeah. She had a really hard life, yeah. Anyway. What was your first gig and, and how did you make your first, I don't know, 100 pounds? <laughs> uh, my first ever job. My first ever job was working, I used to work in um, a British, like, uh, what was it? They sold like CDs and sweets and candy. It was a place called Woolworths. Um, and then after that, I worked in a ladies clothing store called Bling. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah which was uh interesting <laughs> but yeah that's how I made my first my first money I didn't like working in bling because uh I felt like I didn't fit in there um why not so it was interesting I remember I remember the woman who owned the store kept on pressurizing me into buying some of the clothes to wear them so that I could like you know show off the merchandise and I remember feeling like that's not right but I couldn't really speak up and I didn't feel comfortable wearing those clothes because I felt like they weren't really for me. I would say that my family aren't exactly white passing, but they're very fair skinned. And I think they always get asked kind of like, where are you from? In a, in a, and that question maybe comes from an assumption that maybe they are from Turkey or from Greece or from somewhere that's like not super offensive. <laughs> uh, whereas for me, because I'm dark skinned, so I'm the dark skinned person by quite a long way. There's no doubt that I'm not a white person, no doubt for a second. And I, I think that for a long time, I didn't realise that. I grew. I went to an, a school in East London that was so diverse that honestly, like I know it just sounds like such an awful, awful cliche, but as a young child, I was just not aware of my skin colour. And then experiences like working at Bling, there were a few, there've been a few really formative experiences for me where I'm like, oh wow, I'm not white. And working in this clothing store where all of the clientele were white, I was just like, oh, like these clothes aren't for me and I don't really belong here. Was that the first time that you realized that you weren't um, white? No, the first time I realized, I would say was when my my mum took me out of this very deprived state school that we went to that at the time I think was like 
maybe the second or third worst primary school in the entire country and 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 channeled all of her money into putting me into a private school for two years and I walked into this private school and I just knew I didn't belong and all of those other kids knew that I didn't belong and I remember someone asking me are you his sister and I was like no why would you oh he's brown and I'm brown so you think we're brother and sister and I was like whoa (laughs) um and yeah and I I experienced a bit of bullying there I remember um a girl telling me to go back home meaning like to whichever country she assumed that I came from um yeah I I didn't fit in I did not fit in at all and I didn't speak the same as them I had a little like real cockney (laughs) accent at the time that I kind of lost um it was really difficult actually and and how did you respond to that I definitely spent more time alone I don't really think I had a choice about that um I think I became quite angry I think I think yeah I was angry about a lot of different things but I think that made me quite angry And I just became really focused on like getting out of there. You know, like all the things that I think it still lives with you. All of the things that make you feel less than. My school uniform was secondhand. No one else's was. My school uniform never felt like as clean or as pristine. Partly because my mum was like working her ass off. And so she didn't have the time to like iron all of my things. Um, And I just felt less than. Has that kind of uh, feeling of being uh, an outsider or the only brown person in the room, has that continued in, in throughout your life as an adult? I think it depends on on where I've been. I think uh, I, my, my secondary school that I went to, thank God, was very, very diverse, um, which was great. Um, but it was a very weird experience to me moving to the US because my first job here was working in a very, very, very white space. And I had a similar feeling of just, oh my God, I don't fit in. I remember walking into, um, we would have these meetings and the head of the organisation would have each person walking in, he'd be like, hey man, hey bro, hey man, hey man, hey man. I mean, it was most, it was also the masculinity of the place. It was just the feeling that uh, I did not belong. But I think this idea of like Arab identity, are you Arab? Yeah, I'm Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, being complicated is I don't know maybe people already know that but like I feel like my my friends so okay I would say that part of the way that race and ethnicity operate in Britain is by the denial of it so everyone just assumes it's not a big deal it's not necessarily a big part of who you are and then we can all get along quite nicely or at least that was how it felt five years ago when I lived there And coming over here, being Arab is a word that I'm more and more willing to use. And I feel like some friends back home, I mean, they've even said it, that they find it weird. I never, ever described myself as Arab. And I think think some of them might even see it as like me trying to cash in on some, I don't know, positive discrimination or affirmative action or something like that. And I think the idea that your identity changes as you get older and that you can feel one way and then feel a different way. Because I, I think people understand that it can change depending on the context or the room that you're in. But actually the idea of it evolving with with age is something that feels quite bizarre. But it's just it just feels very, very true in my case. I don't know. 
And that for me, so I, I mentioned that I didn't know any Arabs. And then when I was like 26, I went to this workshop about um, about the Middle East that was led by this wonderful friend of mine called Tamara ben Halim, And she became my first Arab, ever Arab friend. And it was so, it was, I don't know, there was something so joyful in it, in her referencing all of these things that, that I knew. Um whether it was like her talking about the way that her mum cleans her kitchen and how she's so obsessed with hygiene or her saying all of these Arabic words in the conversation that were still in my household, even though we didn't, even though we didn't grow up speaking Arabic. That was so beautiful to discover that. I know that you said, you know, you wanted to be a journalist because, you know, you, you were ambitious and you wanted people to hear what you had to say. But, but w- what are the other reasons why you, you got into journalism? I've always liked telling stories. Uh, That was a big part of my childhood. As I said, I went to a church school from Monday to Friday. And so, like, um, on Mondays, you would write this weekend diary thing about what you did um, over the weekend. And I would often talk about hanging out with Jesus. (laughs) Just like, I found these old books, yeah, and I'd just be like... and, And the teacher's notes are so sweet. They're like, this is really lovely, Mona, but, like... Let's try to stick to the facts here. <laughs> I would just say that, like, me and Jesus went to the duck pond. Me and Jesus went ice skating. <laughs> and I'm sure that if my parents ever had had the time to read read those books, which they definitely didn't, they too would have been horrified. Uh, yeah, but I... Yeah, I was pretty tight with Jesus back then. But anyway, I really enjoyed writing. I enjoyed the process of writing. And I actually really enjoyed art when I was younger as well. But that's something that kind of fell by the wayside when this idea of being sensible and focused and driven came in. So I didn't draw anything from when I was a young child right up until when I was at 538 when I was starting to lose my mind. And I drew as a way of kind of um, finding calmness and serenity. Is that the moment that you became this thing called called a data journalist? No, I, so I, the, my whole career in journalism has always been in data journalism, which I think is kind of weird nowadays, actually. Most people transition into it. But yeah, my first job was on the data journalism desk at The Guardian. What about it do you enjoy? Um, I enjoy the process of kind of finding context. So I enjoy... Someone telling me a story and me having compassion and empathy and interest in it, but also wanting to understand that bigger picture. Yeah. So, you know, if a friend tells me, I don't know, tell me something that happened to you recently that you you wondered if you was alone or if it was a freak occurrence or it made you feel, yeah, just something that happened recently. One of the things I always wonder about that I always wish you would, I'm just going to tell you right now, I wanted to save it, but I might as well just tell you. Um, I always wonder about if there are three stalls in a bathroom, which one gets used the most? Oh, I think about that all the time. Yeah, I keep on meaning to write about that, you know. Um, and I think I even looked for data on it once. Yeah, that's a, that, I've definitely, definitely thought about that. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of thing that could totally be answered by data. And what I will also say is that preoccupation, I would say to a certain extent, is quite an Arab thing. This is something I've only realised as an adult, that part of my obsession with hygiene is Arab. I never realized that was a part of my cultural upbringing, but it is, right? It is. Yeah, I always wonder which is going to be the cleaner stall. Like the further one is the one people usually 
often. And then like the furthest from the door. But then the first one I feel like maybe most people go into. So is it the middle one? But the middle one always feels like it's dirty. I don't know. Or is everyone doing the exact same calculation and thinking that the middle one is going to be the cleanest, in which case they're they're self-sabotaging because that's everyone's calculation and then it's not the cleanest. Anyway, that process of kind of, um, of, of finding the information is really exciting for me. It feels like a bit of a treasure hunt. And what I really enjoy as well is the fact that so often this work has been done. It's been done by other people who are far more qualified than me, who like, for example, that would have been answered by a behavioral economist somewhere. And the, the fact of the matter is very often the way that they're writing and publishing their findings is a way that's inaccessible to the general public. And so very often I kind of see my role as being a translator to dig into those studies and take this brilliant work that has been done by someone and try to translate in a way that feels honest and true to the original findings and doesn't doesn't compromise their accuracy, but just makes them accessible. And somehow you've, you've managed to create this niche for yourself. You are telling us the numbers, but in a way that is so amusing and so relatable. And how did that, how did that process even happen? I really think my background is a big part of it. Like I, yeah, like I said, I'm a bit of a narcissist. I care about like reaching as many people as possible because it makes me feel successful in some way. But also I really care about the people in my life. So like when I come up with a draft illustration, I send it to like four or five friends who have got nothing to do with journalism, nothing to do with writing or the media. And I ask them if it makes sense to them. And very often they're like, no, like this does not make sense. This isn't good. And that's such crucial feedback to me because if it doesn't make sense to them, then I don't want to publish it. Um, So I think, yeah. That, that like informs a big part of what I do. Can you then walk me through the process from the very beginning to the very end of how you create um, a particular illustration, a graphic? Yeah, let me try and come up with one. Can you think of one that you would like to know that process for that you might have seen? Well, the first one that comes to mind is just um, the curvature of the penis, but maybe that's not the best one. <laughs> maybe that's not the best one to to do. We can do the flood levels, the Donald Trump okay. and the flood levels. Okay, the curvature of the penis one. The, the the research idea started from one very sad evening, as you can imagine. <laughs> And then being like, I wonder how many more men uh, suffer from this. So anyway, let's show over that one. Um, and do, yeah, so um, this was, oh, which, which, which hurricane was it where Trump like stood up on top of a truck and like started throwing toilet roll out into the crowds? Oh my God, jeez. Yeah, just yeah. so awful, so, so awful. Anyway, I wanted to contextualise for people just how extreme this flooding was. Because the problem is, is that on the one hand, numbers feel like such an exciting language to me because this, like as digits, they are accessible. They traverse cultures and countries and they're so accessible. Um, you know, my, my, my Arab parents use the same digits that I do, but they're also not. Because the problem is, is that when you hear a number like 3,564, what does that even mean? Is that a lot? Is it a little? Every single time I hear something about billionaires, I, I have no frame of reference for understanding that amount. And the same thing goes with floods. Like every single time they talk about how many inches there are, it's very difficult for me to actually visualize that. 
And so for this one, I wanted to contextualize that flood damage in relationship to previous very bad floods in the US. But I also wanted to show those measures with something that feels tangible and relatable. And so I used an image of Trump. Uh, I think this was an image of him just before he started to throw out those toilet rolls. And because he's six foot two, and people, I think, generally have a sense that he's not necessarily a short guy. I just showed the floodwaters in relationship to him. So it's just an an illustration of him um, with the floodwaters of various recent hurricanes drawn against him. And you can see that I think it comes up to like his his chest or something, or maybe his waist, the most recent flood. Yeah. I like, I see something that's happening in the news. I I feel like maybe people are, maybe people who are looking at it have a set of questions. Maybe they're asking themselves, is this really something new? Maybe they're asking themselves, who does this affect? Does it affect men more than women? Does it affect one particular racial group, one particular age group? Um, and so numbers can help me to do that. So I literally just start researching. My go-to sources are very often government numbers, which people sometimes think of as being quite unreliable and quite sceptical, but they remain one of the best sources that we have. And they are, by and large, incredibly impartial, depending on which country you're looking at and which data set. Anyway, so I look at government numbers. I look at Google Scholar. I look for academic pieces. um, I look at numbers that are published by NGOs. And then what I very often do is I will get those numbers and do them into a very classic chart type. So I'll literally be sitting in Excel or even Google spreadsheets sometimes. And I will just look through the different chart types. I'll take that same data set and look at it as a bar chart, a pie chart, a line chart. Um, And I'll see which of those feels like it communicates the data the best. And then I think about the subject that I'm talking about here. If I'm talking about um, (laughs) men in tech, uh, can I show these bars as penises? Um, If I'm talking about... um, pantyhose sales can I draw this as like a line chart which is actually just a woman's leg that's kind of bent and extended and it's really important to me that the subject is inherent in that visual I think that means that the the visual itself is more memorable because you saw a chart about flooding that looks like a flood but I also think it it sometimes has an emotional power that I think should be inherent in data journalism I think Some people, like a lot of people, aspire to this idea that they are producing perfectly objective work that has some kind of moral purity because of it. And that's just not the case. Like these numbers have an emotional weight to them. And I want to be honest about that. And I also want to be honest about the fact that I, as a person, have made decisions when I was looking at that data set about what it was that I wanted to show. And that my own biases as a as a human affected my understanding of where the story was. And I think that by creating hand-drawn illustrations, you don't forget that it was a human that made those decisions. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up this um, topic of bias. And, I, and I, I know that you've spoken about this before, but maybe you could tell me a little bit more about this uh, inherent trust um, that people have in you and, and in journalism and, and what are the what are the dangers and what what are the beauties about it as you know about that trust yeah um it's an enormous responsibility and I hope that people don't trust me too much like the skepticism that people have to me is so healthy um but I do think that there's something about data journalism and maths in particular that can make a certain questioning part of people's brains switch off. And that comes, I would say, from a place of fear. 
So most people have a fearful relationship with mathematics. They have a fearful relationship with finances. It's something that they think they are somehow not capable of. They're not good at it. They want to leave it to other people to do. Um, and I don't, I, I don't want people to feel that way. I think that's really dangerous because the consequence of that very often is that people look at a chart and they assume that it was created by someone who's smarter than them and just kind of like not question it. There feels to be like a truth that is impenetrable or or, or it's difficult to to dismantle a chart and to ask the right questions to figure out the truth in it. And um, I really love my Instagram comments. People call me out all the time. They ask brilliant questions about like, um, about the, the composition of that image and how it was created. And I think all of those questions continually make me better at what I do. Yeah. How do, how do you know that you, you've do, you're done with an illustration? How do you, what's the moment that you decide to post it or publish it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I feel like sometimes I'm done when my deadline comes <laughs> and I just kind of have to send it off. Um, but I feel like very often I'm done when, so I recently posted an um, an animation about women in the arts. And actually I finished that three weeks ago and I spent another two weeks continually, continually, continually changing it. And I knew that I was done when I looked back at the earlier draft and I could see how much it, it was, how much better it was than these later changes that I was making um, and that there was a purity and a simplicity to that earlier draft. And so when I can compare and contrast various drafts and see that the earlier one was much better that's kind of an indication to me that I was done from what I see on your Instagram or any kind of you dress really colorfully and really stylishly hmm. is there a relationship between uh, your illustrations and also the way you present yourself wow <laughs> that's very very kind I really don't think of myself as doing that um I would say actually the way that I dress has a lot more to do with my um, ethnicity than anything else. You know, most of my extended family are incredibly religious and they spend a lot of their time in black abayas. And um, when they grieve, they wear black for a year. And so black to me is a very, very, it's just a very heavy colour. And I try to avoid wearing black as much as possible. After 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 we lost someone, I tried to wear black for a while to... Just for, just for a little while, I think, just to try and respect it. But it was just so hard, the weight of it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you love in life be, be, besides your work? Um, so my work is a really, really, really big part of my life. Uh, and I feel very privileged that it's something that I enjoy. Um, and my friends are a really, really big part of my life. I think this is partly the result of having been single for so many years of my adult life that my friends figure so heavily. Um mm -hmm. And I think it's really beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, my friends are a really, really big part of my life. <laughs> it's funny, I, I literally just got a new therapist and she was like, describe yourself. And I was like, I love my friends and I love my work. And she was like, is that it? <laughs> I, like, I think that's it. <laughs> that's kind of all I've got. I, I don't know. I don't know what else. I've started to exercise for the first time in my life recently. And that feels quite good. Although I'm quite upset about the fact that I have lost my ass. I had a big Arab ass. Uh, and I'm sad that I'm losing <laughs> but I know that I should focus more on being fit and healthy but yeah anyway <laughs> you can get it back I'm sure I'm sure I can yeah just a, a week in Iraq and it will be back in a second yeah exactly <laughs> you are a little bit of like um 
a celebrity in uh, the nerd geek journal world, which I love. You're like a famous person for nerds, which is like one of my life goals. Um, anyway, I wanted to ask, um, do you ever get stopped in the street? Do people recognize you? Occasionally. And I really don't like it. I really, really don't like it. Like it's sweet. Like the people who follow my work, like I'm not actually famous and I'm not actually like, I don't think people like, like, I don't know. They just, they, it's so nice. They just want to stop me to be like, hi, I just wanted to say, I like what you do. And it's so beautiful, but I really hate it because I feel so part of the reason why I love living in cities is because I really want to be invisible. I really, really want to be invisible. And that feeling of like someone coming up to you, I don't know. Like I remember I was eating, I was eating um, dinner by myself at this bar and like, I don't know, maybe I had like food around my mouth. I was on the phone at one point and God knows what I was saying to my friend while I was on the phone, like personal stuff. And then the person next to me was like, oh, I just wanted to say like, I know who you are and like, I'm a big fan. And I was like, but then what did you just hear me say? <laughs> you know? This is a really dark question and I'm sorry, but um, if what would you want your first, the first two lines of your obituary to say? <laughs> oh, Wow a good friend she was a good friend uh and she was a good person is that I don't know she was a good person I only wanted to say one thing she was a good person that's it if you're looking for more of Mona follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Mona Shalabi that's Mona C-H-A-L-A-B-I seriously do it you can thank us later. She's also happy to answer any questions you might have. So get in touch at Mona at MonaShalabi.com. And this episode was produced by Dana Balut and myself, Hiba Fisher, with editorial support by Lena Mohammed and Alex Atak. Sound design by Mohammed Khezat and fact-checking by Dana Dueder. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur and El Empire is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network. A huge thank you, of course, to Mona for giving us her time for this interview. All of our guests on El Empire are extremely busy people, and so it means a lot to us that they trusted us with their time. Thank you, Mona. And next week on El Empire... I just woke up one morning and I remember very clearly I looked in the mirror and I said, do you want to live or do you want to die? And I looked in the mirror that day, I remember it really clearly, and I said, I want to live. And I never looked back. And then from that day forward, I made a conscious decision to really look at myself and understand what I had to offer the world and to, to live in authenticity and no fear. That's in one week. Lastly, if you're liking El Empire, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also, leave a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. It actually helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find out about us in the podcast libraries. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.